Today I have a special guest on, Dr. Tracy Pearson, legal analyst from Law and Crime. She's also the executive producer and host of Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy. I'm hoping we can do a deep dive today. But I like most about how is how she describes herself. She says she has a passion for helping another person learn or understand something they didn't know before and most importantly changing their perspective you are a natural teacher hey i'm hoping to learn something thank you so much for coming on dr tracy pearson thank you very much it's great to be here with you now i always like to know right out of the shoot where are you physically right now now well not to put a little bit of competition on here put a little bit of heat but I, a couple of interviews ago i interviewed a guy in australia on the beaches in australia can you top that I cannot. I am in Los Angeles in my home. Well, you know, if there's any earthquakes that come. I've actually been to Los Angeles a couple times. For some reason, most of my business takes me east and not often to the west. But when I was in Los Angeles, I did experience an earthquake. I was there in Marina Del Rey with my uncle. I assume it's just old hat for you. It is. I mean, the first one I had, I was a little bit nervous. It was a 5.3 and it shook the building. Um, it slid back and forth, rolled back and forth. They're designed to do that. Um, and then after that, it was no big deal. Now, now when you, um, uh, so we, we agree that if you do experience an earthquake today, you'll let me know. Like, uh, give me some kind of hand signal or something, because I want to experience an earthquake with you. I can say, <laughs> hey, I experienced an earthquake in California, and I was all the way here in Kansas City. Have you ever been to Kansas City? I have not been to Kansas City. All right. You're missing out. Wait, I know, wait. particularly in the food department, I think. We, we have food. I was just talking to my brother who lives in Eugene, Oregon. He said, they're going to do a barbecue for his daughter's graduation party. And I said, dude, really? You're going to do a barbecue? Because people in Oregon have no idea what a barbecue is. Let me just ask you. You're in California. If I say, hey, Dr. Tracy, come over to my house and we're going to have a barbecue, what do you think you're going to be eating? You know, I, I would say that most likely it's going to be it depends. I mean, it depends on, on who's hosting the barbecue. It could be vegetarian, but, but really out here, it'd probably be, you know, from people that I hang out with, steaks and, and probably See? burgers, maybe. Exactly. And that is not a barbecue. I corrected my brother said, no, that is a cookout that you're grilling. Barbecue is slow smoked. If it takes less than 14 hours, it's not a barbecue. You got to put that brisket on, have a 220 degree temperature or some ribs. It needs to take at least 14 hours to complete. That's what in the Midwest, that's what we call a barbecue. So if you're ever in the area, stop on by and I'll treat you to a barbecue. Well, Dr. Tracy, I'd like to find out uh, people's journey. Now, you know you're on courtroom TV and you are a natural teacher. So I'm excited to see what I can learn today. But I'm always fascinated. What caused you to get to this point in your life? Let's just start with law school. Why did you choose law and not be a doctor of, of medicine or some other kind of doctor? Why law? Okay, well, I have two doctorates. I have one in law and education, um, but okay. they, they came at separate times in my life. But, but I, um, I didn't choose law initially. I actually had gone to graduate school for um, English. I wanted to okay. teach in higher education. And what happened was I, I was an advocate in my department, and, and I was somebody who advocated for others. And 
I I just I read a little short story that that ultimately the short answer to that is that um, this idea of just tossing around ideas and doing nothing with them and allowing other people to grab them and do something with them was just not my idea of a good time. Like I was somebody okay. who wanted to make a difference. Um, and so uh, it was suggested I go over to law school, do an independent study over there and, and see okay. if that fit. Um, I did. And literally on day one, it was like, oh, the sky opened up. There was light. It was amazing. And, and that's where I belonged. It was something that you can learn. Really? It was, yeah, it was really, it was, an, it was intellectual and it was practical. So let's just say you had a son who, oh, I'm hypothetically, let's just say 22 years of age, uh, really good student. Again, this is just hypothetical. You know, let's say you had a son whose name is, let's just say, Dak. Yeah, yeah, Dak. Uh, he want, he's thinking about going to law school. Would you encourage him? Would you say it's the best experience? Uh, you should try it or you should avoid it at all costs. Gosh, you know, when I went to law school, I'd already been to grad school for a couple of years. So um, I was a little bit older than most law students. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't caught up in sort of this game. I was like, I just got to get to the end. Like, you know, I don't okay. have to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you. Um, and so I think that that for me, I think it was a great experience because what it did is it trained my mind how to think. And that that made me right. valuable to everybody. I think it was the best three years of my life, by the way. Uh, my son, Zach, not Dak, is 22 years of age, thinking about going to law school. So I'm going to say Dr. Tracy said it is going to be the best of three years of your life. But kind of what you were saying, I agree with. It was it was fun. I mean, I enjoyed it more than any other educational experience. I enjoyed the the um, reading the cases, debating the cases, arguing if someone was right or wrong. And so I'm, I'm glad you had a similar experience in that regard. It's a little like high school, at least when I was when I was in. I mean, it was it was some gosh, it was when did I graduate? 2003. So almost 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, where where everybody traveled around together in a pod from class to class. And, right, right. you know, and there were these lockers and stuff like that. And so it was a it was a departure from from college in that we sort of went back to that sort of clicky environment. But it was a lot of fun in, in the terms of the education and the learning and the the, the opportunities available. And it was much different because all before I went to law school, my experience was great inflation. Pretty much everyone who wanted to got the A, right? You did the work, whatever. You, you, you argued with the teacher. You got your 89, moved up to a 91. You got, everyone got an A. Hey, it's like Oprah Winfrey, everyone gets an A. You go to law school. It's not that way. We had a class about 100 there in property one. And it's like the property one professor said, look, six of you are going to get the A. Six of you, maybe 10 might get a B, the rest are C's, except for you idiots that are going to get D's and S, and you're going to transfer out of law school. So that was a different mindset. It actually was competitive. Did you have any interesting stories about that competitive nature? To give you what you're thinking, I had one where we, as, as one else, we had to do an open memo where everyone had to write about the same memo. So we were all researching the same issue, and this is before Westlaw, we had to actually go to the library and a couple people went to the library first, found the, the statute, the treatise, whatever, ripped out the applicable pages. So no one else could research that matter. They had the goods. And so any competitive stories to share? Yeah, you know, my first uh, semester, they made you use the books. And so okay. I, I distinctly remember, you know, somebody slicing through the books. Um, I, I think that the most 
I, if you call it competitive, I think it was a competitive situation where I was taking advanced trial practice. It was in my third year. Um, I think it was my spring term, so it was my last term. Um, and I was taking it with a guy named Judge Brunetti. Um, and Judge okay. Brunetti used to be a, a, he was a court of claims judge in New York. He probably still is, for all I know. Um, wrote a great book on, on criminal confessions that I helped him edit. But in any event, um, he, we, we were tasked with doing an exercise on how to cross-examine or, or a, um, an expert witness. And he had said, go down to the reference library as part of the assignment, you know, go down to the reference library and grab a book and prepare, prepare, you know, to, to examine an expert witness. And then he took the stand and, and um, he was the expert witness. And I just, I remember this moment where um, I was doing it and, and he said, stop. And I was like, oh God. Because I knew him from having done some some right, uh, right. you know law you know uh, law clerkships or whatever, and so I went oh god, and he said how did you know how to do that? I was like, I read the book, and he was like, you hear that guy? She actually read the book, you know. And so you know there's a little pitting against each other, and I was like okay. He's like I keep going, I keep going. He's like this is hard. So, you know, because he was trying to stump me. And, and so I, that was, you know, an environment. Um, I do remember one other, and that was when I took my first trial practice class. And this is going to come as some surprise to your, your listeners, um, based on what I do, um, is that I, we had to do this thing where we were, uh, you know, we had to give a three and a half minute speech. And in front of the jury box, sort of like your first exercise, and it could be about anything, you know, as if you were addressing the jury. It wasn't on anything particular. And it was in a courtroom where there were cameras, and, and I was a little nervous. And I think when I'm a little nervous, I can hear every little sound. So I'm standing in front of my peers, doing this for the very first time, and I hear um, the cameras whirring back and forth, you know, the sound because I'm right. moving around, it's moving around. And I start talking and I get all confused. And so my professor, God love him, I love him, uh, Travis Lewin, um, he, he said, but stop, stops the stopwatch. He's sitting behind me on the bench. And he says, stops the stopwatch, he says, stop. He said, try again. So I said, okay. So I try again, <laughs> screw it up again. He said, okay, stop. All right, do it again. He said, last time. At that point, what I did was I just forced myself through it. And I didn't talk about what I was talking about. I talked about like what I had planned to talk about. I talked about like, I am a complete and utter failure. I have no idea why I would ever do this for a living. There's no reason why I should be standing here. I am, I, this is outside, just utterly ridiculous. And I completely just, just annihilated myself. But I got right, through right. the three and a half minutes and he starts clapping. Okay. Really? And, and I was like, it's slow clapped. Okay. We're not talking good clap. And oh. so I sat down and I was like, okay, good. I lived through that. That's fine. When's the ad drop? And what happened the next minute was that he said, okay, so, you know, family weekend's coming up and that's the big event that, you know, at this point we're like two else. He's like, that's the big event. If you guys recall, and there's, we, this is our biggest, you know, moment where we, we showcase the trial program. And so, um, we do a, a demonstration. And so I need two people to volunteer. To, to argue, to do a closing argument. And I sat there. And so everybody raised their hands. I sat there. And so he picked on one guy, his name's Andrew Knoll. Uh, he was a medical doctor who was going back to law, going to school to, be a, to get the law degree. And he's like, you know, Andy Knoll, you. And I said, nothing. And he went, and he picked on me, he said, Tracy, you. And I went, wait, wait what, what, what? And he said, you. And he said, don't screw it up. And so um, the day I prepared, I prepared, I mean, I, I really worked myself into a tizzy. Um, and the day of, you know, he said, don't, don't embarrass me. 
okay, uh, beforehand. And I got up and I, I did the closing argument of a lifetime. And, yeah, yeah. you know, they had jurors sitting in the box and there were people, you know, that it was simulcast into classrooms. I mean, it was a big deal. And um, so then he pulls the jury at the end. I get through it. I get through it great. I, I got hand gestures. I'm good. And um, he pulls the jury at the end and he gets all the way. He goes through all of them and they're like, Tracy, 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 Tracy. Who would won? Tracy, 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 Tracy. He gets to the last guy who goes, Andrew. But he goes, it's Tracy. I feel bad for Andrew. I said Andrew only because I feel bad for Andrew. And I was just like, <laughs> yes. But it was one of those moments where, you know, Poor I felt Andrew. like... Yeah, well, you know, poor Andrew. I felt like a failure, and and yet, you know, because it, it was competitive, it, it, you know, that right. competitive nature sits on you, and then you know the environment, and and what I was able to do was get past that. All right. Well, hey, the one other thing that really interested me, uh, that stood out to me about your uh, your bio, is that you have a superpower. Now, I thought. I think that most of us have a superpower. Uh, for me, it's the ability to, to sleep anywhere. I can sleep on a concrete slab at three in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. By the way, I've done that. You have a superpower, which is the cold read. What does that mean? And dare I say, what have you gleaned from me so far during this interview? Don't, don't answer that one. What is I, I won't word? answer that one. I'll answer the former one. I, you know, I spent my career um, uh, sitting across from people who, who would walk in and I would know nothing about them or their case. And I, I would sit with them for an hour or so, listen to what they thought their problem was, and then be able to issue spot and tell them what their problem was and what the solution right. was and how I was going to go about it. Um, and that just sort of transformed into being able to be a really great issue spotter and somebody who could who could analyze things on the fly. And I do that as part of my work as a, as a legal analyst on law and crime. All right, there you go. So uh, that's gotta be really good for meeting people, I guess. I don't know, uh, interesting, cold read. Well, you are a, a regular on, on uh, law and crime offering a legal analysis. So I feel like I have a real great opportunity here. I mean, I view this like I'm at a dinner party, a cocktail party, and I got your attention and we're just shooting the breeze on what's going on in the world of law because you have so much to offer. Let's start with the Husel case. Give us an update. What is that case about and what is the latest take of what's going on there? The sure. fascinating case. Uh, the case is uh, the case of, of Ohio versus William Musil, and it was out of it was out of Ohio, it was out of Franklin County. Um, and what uh, the case is about is it's about a, a medical doctor who worked for uh, Mount Carmel uh, Hospital West in Mount Carmel St. Anne's, and uh, the allegation was that um, he had murdered um, fourteen people. Was ultimately the end the end okay. number of indictments. So fourteen uh, individuals in the ICU where he worked by uh, giving them um, an overdose of fentanyl. Um, okay, now, was there intent here? Did he mean to kill them, or was he just giving them drugs and overdosing them? Well, he claimed he was giving them comfort care. And in the Ohio okay. statutory code, there's, there's a, a, an immunity provision for doctors who are giving comfort care. Um, and what, what the family members testified to was that ultimately, um, you know, they, they were not, they weren't given informed consent. I, they, there were some people that were comatose. Uh, there were five people in particular who uh, the state's expert said that, that Dr. Husel did not 
do enough and was very specific about that, um, enough to provide them with sufficient care to save them. Um, okay. And so he just went straight to, they were terminal and, and you know, do you want them to be comfortable? You know, do you want them not to have any pain? And then um, in on one occasion in particular, um, there were two nurses um, and uh, he told one nurse to give 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl uh, by an IV push, which is not how the drug is, is typically given. Okay. Um, normally it's titrated and it's it's a drip that happens over time. It's based on kilograms right. and stuff like that. Um, and then I uh, told a different nurse to do the exact same thing about 20 minutes apart. Neither nurse knew that they were told to do that. Ah, and so the person okay. got 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl, which, you know, the state lined up in, in vials, what that would look like. And so asked them 14. to fill those, asked them to fill those vials in the other room so the family wouldn't see. Ah, so these, so these 14 patients are go to this doctor in the emergency room, and I assume it's a real dire situation. It's I not mean, the emergency room. It's not okay, there. Okay. So they end up okay. they end up going into the hospital one way or another, and they end up in ICU. I got you, ICU. Okay, they're in ICU, and these 14 are at the... Now, is it possible that some of these 14 could make it and, and, this, and survive? Was that the situation, or was this like a hospice kind of situation where they're going to die no matter what, and he's just going to provide some comfort? In some cases, according to the state, um, the the folks were were viable. Um, in all of the cases, the state said that they weren't going to die in that moment. So, in other okay. words, he hastened the death, um, I... and by doing what he did, um, because of the types of conditions that they were suffering from, fentanyl acts as a as a respiratory depressant. So, it causes something called wooden chest syndrome, which makes you not be able to breathe. Um, wow. And they, you know, they were giving, they were, the medical treatment was to give vasopressors, for example, to increase, increase blood pressure. Well, fentanyl tanks your blood pressure. Um, ah, okay. And so what they didn't do in the case was they didn't provide a motive. They don't have to, uh, you know. Right. What is the motive here? They didn't, they didn't, they, you don't have to. And they didn't make an argument for motive. Um, it, but in any event, what happens is after many, many weeks of trial, um, many, many hours of deliberation um, and some really weird things that took place, like the like the defense counsel uh, filing a motion to remove the judge after after the evidence had been concluded and before the closings, things like that. Weird stuff um, right. that uh, and, and the defense counsel tweeting during deliberations after many days that they hadn't come to to an answer, um, talking about how the state you know, had failed to, to tell them certain things and then deleting the tweet, stuff like that. Ah, um, right, right. You know, so, so some weird stuff. Um, the jury returned a verdict and it was uh, not guilty on all 14 counts. Not guilty. Mm -hmm. Do you think the failure to expose a motive hurt the state? I mean, in my mind, again, I, I don't, I had not followed this case closely. It makes a difference if a person has ill intent as compared to, did this person really think in his heart of hearts he was doing the right thing? And it's just, you messed up by by not going to the the, uh, the, pa the patient's families, getting permission. Do you think that was a tactical mistake by the prosecution? I think it was a tactical mistake by the prosecution, the way they charged the case and the way they structured it. They structured it based on pure murder. It was murder. Um, right. And, you know, I looked at it based on what I heard in the evidence and thought about why didn't you why didn't you charge battery 
for failure to provide informed consent? And then why didn't you charge involuntary manslaughter and make it a, a, a negligence case? In other words, you know, you knew the risk of fentanyl and what it would do, right. and you failed to follow, you know, you, you failed to, to use good judgment and follow a standard of care. Um, and instead what it was, was that it was purposeful. And, but they didn't have a sufficient sort of story or answer that I think the jury could lock onto. The other thing was that the 14, they picked, they chose 14 that were, uh, it was, they originally had, it was something like 25, I think. Wow, um, okay. I, Cause this was like 30, 36 deaths that were, that were wow, okay. at issue. They had 25 indictments. I think it was 25. They judge dismissed at the request of prosecution 11 and got them down to 14. Um, and so, of those, those 14 were 1,000 micrograms or more of fentanyl had been, had been um, given. Um, I think they should have done just the five that were viable. In other words, they, they weren't going to die at that moment. They, were, they, they, they could have had a, a better course of treatment and, and, um, and lived much longer. And had they, had they reduced the number of, of purported victims down to five and chose those five, and then charged battery and as well as manslaughter. I think that that it it would have been a it would have been a guilty verdict um, if if the jury considered the evidence. There was some other stuff where you know the state's witnesses, as far as experts, were fabulous. There were there were a lot of witnesses. There were something like fifty some odd witnesses in this case because they had to do a lot of authentication on death certificates, and there was a lot of family members that testified. Um, and the state, or rather, the defense put on one witness. Um, it was uh, an expert who, who's known to be a, a prolific expert. Um, I believe, it's my opinion, um, that he was not truthful on the stand. Um, he, first of all, was cross-examined on a CV where he didn't have the degrees that he said he did. Um, so that was right off the bat. Um, right. and, and the second thing is that there was some questioning around um, whether fentanyl was used as a lethal injection drug. And he, he said he claimed he knew of nowhere, which wasn't true. In fact, he had filed an affidavit uh -huh. in support of a case in Nebraska related to that. So, he, you know, it, it, there was some dishonesty in his part. He also came off really crass. He said that brain dead people were not people. They weren't human um, and they had no rights. And wow. And so to me, if I was a juror and I heard that, that would have just blown yeah. me across the room. Right. Um, do, you, do, you, do you see this going on in your courtroom and in, in your experience where sometimes jurors just kind of take matters into their own hands? In other words, you have here, we have 14 cases. Now, if the juror actually believed or if the prosecution failed to really put any kind of bad intent on, by, on the behalf of the doctor, so maybe the jurors believe this doctor was doing what the doctor thought was bet in the best interest, to then lay on a consequence of, of you're gonna spend the rest of your life in jail, do jurors just some, sometimes just say, yeah, I'm not willing to go there. And so since yeah. this is all you've given us, we're gonna say not guilty. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's jury nullification. We're just going to say that this isn't an issue. Um, I think that jurors, and we ask them to, bring their own personal experiences into the courtroom and into the jury room. And what I think probably transpired in talking with some other folks was that, that they, 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 they probably had family members who had, had passed away and who they saw suffer. At least some of them did. Um, right. I mean, they did come back and say we can't we we can't come to an agreement at one point, and they were given you know um, the dynamite charge. Basically, go back and 
and do it. Um, and so uh, it was, I think a couple of days later, they came back with the, with the verdicts. But I think that, that at least some of them had that, that, that they, had, they had seen, you know, a family member, you know, pass away and struggle. Um, and so that may have weighed on them. I think some folks, at least in the Twitter sphere, see this as a, a uh, right to die issue, which it was not. That none of the people had uh. any say in what transpired. Like none of the purported victims got to say, hey, I don't want this. Um, Good point. And so it's not a right to die situation and, and it's being seized on as that. Um, a lot of people are arguing it from a position of what they would want. I see this personally as I, you know, I landed in the ICU in October out of an outpatient surgery that wasn't, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. And, okay. and I woke up to somebody whispering, we're, you know, or saying to my ear, we're taking you to ICU. And I think about wow. what would have happened if there was a Dr. Usel in ICU. And, and, you know, at one point I remember a nurse trying to give me two medications that I knew would kill me. Um, and I kicked her off my case. Right, so right. had I been on that jury, you, I would have fought to the death on, and you know, no pun intended, on on the idea that 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 this guy hadn't done something wrong. I truly believe he did because I think that it should be against public policy for a doctor to to decide for a patient that that you know that they can do this. I you know there are prescribing uh, limitations on the medications. There they did a lot of blaming. They pointed in every direction possible. Uh, you know, the, the hospital, you know, they, they said the victims were suing. Of course they were. It happens. Right, right. That's what you do. Um, you know, and there was a lot of that usual defense stuff. Now, I used to be a defense attorney. So, you know, I'm usually in their, their corner a lot of the time. But this was just one of those cases where I said, this is unconscionable. No doctor should have the ability to do this. And everybody should know what's happening and how it's happening. And that clearly was not the case, according to the evidence. Now, was that kind of argument made during closing argument? I mean, what you just said, it sounds pretty compelling. I mean, I know you are a teacher and you, you taught me and I, I'm, you, you sold me on it. So I'm, I'm going to order, you know, guilty. Uh, but was that argument made during closing argument? Um, you, to, to a degree, you know, the, the defense side made the argument of, you know, this is comfort care. It's allowed under the law. And why would a doctor, why would anybody do this? He spent his entire life, you know, training to help people. Why would he kill someone? And, and, you know, did a lot of that sort of what I felt was sort of hysteria. Um, and, and they didn't have an answer. They, they, they took that lack of motive and made it and, and made it a, an element of the case when it isn't an element of the case. Well, moving on now to Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Uh, I like Johnny Depp. I love his movies. I, uh, I, thought, I, I thought he did an amazing job there in Edward Scissor's Hand and then also The Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, he's been canceled now for the most part. So bring us up to speed on what is going on in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, defamation case. I got to tell you, this is my favorite case of the year. And here's really? why. It is fascinating. Um, it is a defamation case that's been brought in, in the state of Virginia, uh, in Fairfax County, Virginia, um, because uh, Amber Heard wrote a, his ex-wife wrote a op-ed that um, was published by the Washington Post on their servers that were located in Virginia. And Johnny Depp's attorneys, um, smartly, I think, um, managed to keep it in Virginia so that it wouldn't be okay. in a Los Angeles court where some of this stuff is sort of old hat and, and, and people could have already uh. been biased. 
Um, Amber Heard tried really hard to get it kicked out and to get it kicked over to L.A. and to get it dismissed, and she lost on all counts. Um, and so he has filed a defamation suit. His purpose for doing this, and he, he, he requests money damages um, because he says, you know, nobody will give me work as a result of that, right. in essence, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, but he said he's, he's, it's the only way he can tell his story, and he wants everybody to hear his side of things. And it's, wow. it's, it's actually fairly brilliant. Um, and he is telling his story and he's done an incredible job. I've watched all of his testimony. Um, and we had an opportunity to listen to some audio of Amber Heard uh, uh, yelling and screaming at him and admitting that she hit him. Um, and, you know, and that she, you know, I, she was on Ambien, you know, and she did it. Um, and so justifying it based on, on that. Um, but she also is suing. And she's suing, countersuing for defamation, saying that, you know, right. he's basically, you know, using this to destroy her. Um, she is an interesting person in that she has, and people are talking about this, that she seems to be trolling him in the courtroom by really? wearing clothing that is the same that he was wearing the day before. So she's been coming in in these suits that the color is the same, you know, the matching okay. sort of, it's crazy. And what, what has struck me about her is, is that I think she's playing to the camera. I think she's always uh -huh. looking at this camera. Okay, he's not. She's always looking at this camera. And, what, um, and she's got this sort of pained look on her face that she, she either makes more significant or less significant, but, but still there. And, right. and, and the eyes are dead. I mean, I'm looking at her the whole time. The eyes are dead. Um, and, and I just feel that she is, you know, that this is nonsense. You know, when they got divorced, she um, agreed to a settlement. Um, that's before, or rather, after she filed a domestic violence petition to get, to get the jump on him. Um, and then they settle the divorce, they issue a joint statement, um, and that wiped the slate clean. And then when a movie was coming out, um, she writes this op-ed seizing on the Me Too movement and um, proceeds to, to not name him, but say how she was, you know, a victim and a survivor of ah. domestic violence. And everybody okay. knew what she was talking about, right? Because it, the domestic violence petition, when she filed it, she shows up, she walks to the court, you know, through the, the gauntlet that was, they say, created by her PR people, through the front of the courthouse, you know, through the reporters, et cetera, and so on. And with this bruise on her face, supposedly, um, and files this domestic violence petition, which usually those are granted on an ex parte basis, so without the other party there. And right. as a result of that, they, um, it was granted, because no, most judges grant those out of hand because they just don't want to risk it. They don't want to risk right. that something might happen. Um, and so, you know, she, um, she, she goes and she does that op-ed surrounding this movie that she um, is about to be released. Um, and, and as a result of the allegation itself, um, all of a sudden he became persona non grata in Hollywood. Right. And, and, and so what he's trying to do is tell his story. And, and, and I got to tell you, based on the evidence I'm hearing and based on her own voice and her own words, okay, she's no innocent person. Interesting. So he might be using this as a chance to really vindicate his name. So now I want to get to this here in just a bit, but even if he loses at court because of whatever standard of review is going to be applied, maybe his, he's still winning because in the public's eye, they're saying, look, there are two sides of the story. And maybe these are two people fighting it out over a divorce that got nasty, but he shouldn't be canceled because of that. All right. So before we get there, what is the legal standard? Here's where I'm struggling. This 
does seem to be, you know, two private people in a, who are married, you know, casting, saying things about one another. All right. It seems like it's a private matter. But they're also public figures. And when you have defamation involving a public figure, you have to prove actual malice. Is, is that heightened standard going to make a difference in this case? And does that heightened standard apply when you have two spou former spouses jawing with one another? I think it's agreed upon that because they're public figures and this involves a celebrity and, and the impact on celebrity and, and his inability to do, you know, to do the work that he was doing, um, that, that that malice um, component is in fact applicable. Um, and, and I think it's my, you know, just based on what I've heard so far, look, you, you both issued a, a statement and cleared the decks. So right. then you go and you write this after you get your money to me, seems like there's malice there because she knew what would happen as a result of that. I think a reasonable person knew that what happened by, by, by sort of declaring that, knowing how high profile that divorce was, that nobody could believe that that was about anyone but Johnny Depp. And right. as a result of that, um, that, that the world was going to come down on him around that time and because of the Me Too movement. And so, um, you know, she was exploiting that for her own benefit to make herself, uh, you know, uh, make people feel sorry for her, make her, give her right. a victim status to get people behind her and to get them to support this movie. And so I see that and, and to hurt him at the same time. Um, and so I see that as, as you know, being um, malicious. The other, the other piece is that apparently the divorce decree had a non-disclosure agreement and she actually right. disclosed the terms and so breached that contract and said that she was going to pay money um, uh, to these charities. She was going to take the seven million she got and she was going to pay money to two different charities. Well, the last testimony I heard before I got off the air this morning was that um, so when the first payments were needed to be made, he told his folks to send those payments directly to the charities and she lost her mind. Um, wow. That's All my right. paraphrase based on what I heard. Um, now, based upon your following of this case, how when will this be wrapped up? Are we talking like an O.J. Simpson? We got another six months, or will this be wrapped up within the month? Um, it's it's you know I've heard different estimates between four to seven weeks, um, but it, you know it's it's going to be a long trial because of course there's there's Johnny Depp's case, and then there's there is Amber Heard is going to have her opportunity to tell her case, oh, side of things. That's right. It's a cross claim. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's going to go on for a while. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a who's who. You know, James Franco is listed on the witness list. Uh, uh, Elon Musk is listed on the witness list. Really? They're testifying via Zoom. Oh, That'll yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. Right, I want to move to what uh, I want to move now to the next issue, which has kind of been dominating the, the sports and legal news for the last six months. And that involves transgenderism in sports. I know you have a take on this. And I'm very eager to hear, but in particular, you got Title IX. What does the future hold when it comes to this conflict between transgender rights and the rights for, for female sports? And so uh, this came into the news again of late when transgender golfer Mian Bagger she was a transgender golfer, so this is somewhat, I don't want to say hypocritical because people can change their minds, but she was a male-bodied person who then transgendered and pl played golf in the female area of women's golf, and now she's saying 
that was wrong. She said it's not fair to uh, female in, for female sports or competitors in female sports. What does the future hold when it comes to transgender sports and Title IX? Well, first of all, how convenient for her to do that. Um, I, you know, I, my position on this is is pretty straightforward, which is that if you're a transgendered woman, you're a woman. Um, and so Title IX is, is a statute that, you know, came out of, of the 70s, 1973. Uh, it's very short, it's 23 words that basically says that, um, you know, women or, or no one should be discriminated against because of their gender. Okay, in, 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 in educational programs, if they receive federal money, if those programs receive right. federal money. Okay, that's more words than actually the way it reads. Um, but um, the way that I see it is that if, if transgendered women are women, then, then it, it applies to them. Um, and, um, you know, the most, I think the, you, the one that you reference is the golf case. The one that, that also was making the news is this, the swimmer um, right. um, out of Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, there aren't enough female transgendered athletes to create a separate um, league or a separate competing league. I mean, you know, and, and when you look at the science on this, and I've done a lot of reading about it, when you do look at the science on this, people have, have, have researched the heck out of this. And there is some, some differing views, but ultimately what it comes down to is that um, the NCAA had a different standard uh, when it came to uh, the hormones and how long than the Olympics. Um, it, they're a little bit different. But um, when you take the hormones, Yes, you may have have had a certain body mass, but what happens is you lose some muscle and then as a result of the estrogen, your body loses the ability to carry enough oxygen to that muscle to be able to make 100% use of it. So you lose even more um, effectiveness. Um, and so it sort of, it, it, it bounces itself out. Okay, so that from a science standpoint that there's that. Um, it, when you're in talking about endurance sports, when you're talking about speed sports, like where you need immediate speed, so like let's say something that involves jumping, um, right. you have difference in bone length, and that you know that's that's different. But there are also tall women, so um, you, you you know it, it, when people are competing in sports, they it, what what really drives this issue is politics and what's your view on it. And, and what's your view about transgender rights and transgender people? Um, that's really what it comes down to because, you know, most of the people that I hear talking about it, they don't have a stake in the game. They don't have kids that, that are in sports or, you know, they're past that time. And, and it becomes just about, you know, that this is discrimination against women when they fail to recognize that transgender women are in fact women. Um, well, I and would you agree that politics is reared its ugly head and i I've, I've been very open in my podcast that i can't stand politics because once I, for a lot of many different reasons i don't have to go into them here but just despise it to say it dawned on me one day that the issues that i care deeply about some candidate is running on that platform saying they're going to take care of the issues that i care deeply about but then i realized they're not actually going to change it because once they change it then they won't be able to campaign on that issue anymore. And so I said, ah, fooey on all of it. So I really hate all politics. That aside, um, when it comes to this issue, I, I, if you remove politics from it, you also have liberals on saying, look, it's not fair competition. Martina Navratilova came out and said, look, this isn't a fair competition. It's going to hurt women's sports. 
you mentioned that when it comes to there might not be enough numbers and i wonder if that's not going to be a deciding issue so as long as it happens with leah thomas here and some other person there and it doesn't really come up in a, a large number where it does impact female sports and females opportunities we're not going to deal with it do you think that if it becomes too big of a problem where when i say too big a problem too many male-bodied transgender women um winning and dominating at the sport level so that biological women can't compete that might change the equation you know i think that when you look at sort of our civil rights laws um i i believe that 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 transgendered folks are included in 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 those you know when it, right. just right now as they are and you can't discriminate against people because of their gender or their sex so um you know the fact that that they are winning you know my i'm going to give you a really simplistic view about this you know the new kid moves into town before the new kid was there you were the top dog in a particular sport new kid right. moves into town maybe they're bigger than you maybe they're you know stronger than you and they are uh now all of a sudden beating you right right work harder right work and, and harder that, that is because, an interesting thought because here's the thing you know it was um billy jean king who who beat a man in a tennis match um right. back in back in the day now i don't even know that i was uh, you know a sentient being for long enough at that time <laughs> um but uh you know i am very much aware of it historically right right um she supports bobby riggs versus billy jean king exactly. they actually played twice Exactly. And so so she is somebody who supports this. One of the things that is interesting, and I think your viewers should hear, is that, look, up until fairly recently, um, there used to be tests that, that women might have to undertake to be able to prove that they were female to compete. Uh, it started out really early on where, like, they were, they were demeaning tests, physical tests, um, to prove Hold that they were Hold on a second. Women female. had to take tests they had to, to compete? they had to take tests. So like, like you had to prove that you had the female body parts. So it started out like physical exams. Um, really? and then it, yeah. And then it moved into chromosomal tests. Okay. And then that went away. And so one of the things that is interesting is that, um, uh, Reg Megan Rapinoe has talked about this. Um, and, and folks may know her from the soccer world. Um, right. but you know, it becomes, it, it starts to head back in that direction of, are you female enough? And there is a large segment of the sports population, female sports population and professional uh, sports population. They're saying, we don't want to go back there. Okay. Right, so right. stop this because you don't realize what you're doing. Interesting points. I, I still think just trying to analyze how the law is going to react to the situation. It is going to depend upon the numbers. So to your point that you just said, um, Leah Thomas competed in the recent um, swimming events there for the NCAA championship. And in one of the events, I think either Leah came in sixth or did not place, definitely did not win it. And my thought was huh, for that, for his position, his argument, that's actually an argument in his favor, or I'm sorry, in, in her favor, uh, because he, he, she's basically saying, look, I didn't win this. So other people up their game competed and beat her in that competition. And so that kind of speaks to your point of 
just do better. Just, just train harder and then win, and would that not solve it? Right, exactly. Work harder. It's it's an opportunity to up your game. And because there's always, you know, when you're training as an athlete, now I wasn't an athlete, but when you were training as an athlete, there's all sorts of things that come to play. Look, Michelle Kwan had, you know, had access to a, she lived out in, in California. She had access to this right. great rink. You look at Tanya Harding, who was skating in malls. Uh, you know, every there's always somebody who's going to have it better than you, who's going to have right. either better resources, uh, better social upbringing, all sorts of things. And all of that comes into play when you're talking about an athlete's performance throughout throughout a, a, a career. Um, so do you think we'll get to the point, and because um, I actually think we're headed there, at least I can make the argument, are we getting to the point where there'll be no more distinction between boys and girls sports? It'll just be sports? I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. I think that they're, they're you know, I'm not, I, I, I I'm not seeing that. I mean, I'm seeing that there, I did see some sports that were a little bit crazy um, during the Olympics. Uh, there was this relay race with, on, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, the skaters, uh, it was speed skating relay race, where it was a mixed team. And I remember saying to my husband, okay, that looks like an investigation waiting to happen. That looks like right. sexual harassment waiting to happen just because there's a shove that has to happen in order during, during the course of the, the, the race. Right. And I'm just like, you know, and their, sh their hands are on their butts and they're shoving them. And I'm just like, my God. Right, right. Um, you know, it was shocking, um, but but they're doing mixed team um, races. But I don't think that they'll ever eliminate those distinctions. I don't. Well, here's the reason why I'm asking. Um, are you familiar with the Bostock case, where a couple of years ago the issue before the U.S. Supreme Court was whether or not Title VII prohibits discrimination based upon sexual orientation? And Gorsuch, writing the majority opinion, said, "Yes, it does." Via even though sexual orientation is not mentioned in Title VII. It is discrimination based upon sex, since sex is the operative discriminatory factor there. So there is no discrimination based upon sexual orientation. It's discrimination based upon sex, and that's how you get to a, prohib a prohibition on discrimination based upon sexual orientation, if that makes sense. Yes, right. it does. That's what the court ruled in Bostock. Now, I apply that in the Title IX context. When Let's just say a guy, a boy, wants to go out for the volleyball team. Now, I don't know how things are in California. In the Midwest, there are no guy volleyball teams. There are only girl volleyball teams. Uh, and so, could that if the person tried out for the guy for the volleyball team, could the school say no because of your sex? Or are, after Bostock, are we now past that? Um, I, there have been cases of that in the reverse where females um, have wanted to play football, and that's right. that, and they've won. Um, there, there was a recent case, and I'm trying to remember the details of it, but I, I, you know, I can't readily where where they've said no. I think it was wrestling, where where the, okay. they were the, the female was prohibited from being able to wrestle, and the coach just quit um, right. and said, "Forget this. I'm not going to participate in this." Um, so I think that um, you know that that in terms of a of a of a male student who wanted to play a sport for which there was no opportunity for males. Um, right. I think that, that they legally would have a really strong um, likelihood of prevailing, um, you know, and, and we've seen that happen before um, uh, in the reverse. And then to, to enhance your conclusion there, uh, I will also point out, because I've analyzed this, because I just like to analyze these kind of cases, in the, in the, if you, let's just say you're in the employment context and you're talking about a, a guy wanting to compete uh, in the, um, the women's draw at the U.S. Open, right uh 
the, under under Title VII, there is a BFOQ exception, a bona fide occupational qualification. So there might be an argument made, no, we have to have these distinctions made at the sport level or else it will destroy women's sports. That same BFOQ does not apply in Title IX. There is no BFOQ exception in Title IX. And so I do think that if someone were to challenge it right now, a court would have an awful hard time of saying to the guy, no, you cannot compete in the on the volleyball team because of your sex after Bostock. But I don't know. That's just me. It, it, it didn't. It, it was before Bostock, really. But but Bostock bolstered it. And and you know, but you see that with um, uh, you see it in the context of uh, allegations of misconduct, where uh, males have filed lawsuits saying that they were discriminated against based on sex because of, of you know variety of factors, but using the Title IX as 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 you know the the driving the driving law that they're challenging that I'm being discriminated based on sex for a variety of reasons. And the courts initially were less likely to grant those. Recently, you know, there was a male that won and said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and so I think that, that bolstered by Bostock, that what we, what we have is, look, it says sex is what it says, okay? And, and so, you know, if there was a sport that a male wanted to play that for which there was no opportunity to do so and they, they genuinely wanted to do it, this wasn't a stunt, you know, that, that they, that the school, if it was a public school, would have to comply if they received federal funding. Right, and um, um, I, it'd be interesting to see if the, if the lawsuit were filed. I, I do think it's always interesting to me when we can find common ground. That's what I always like to try to do, because I hate politics. I always think, you know what, people who are intelligent, we can find the common ground, surely. Now, I don't know if I have enough time for this next topic, I want to start it, but if we don't have time to finish it, maybe we can do it as a later podcast. The issue of implicit bias. Now, I teach a class on implicit bias. I base it off of the um, uh, the Brown v. Topeka, Brown v. Topeka Board of Education case. I'm assuming you're familiar with that case. It just happened down the road from where I live. I live right off of I-70, take I-70 far down enough, get to Topeka, and that's where the Brown case originated from. Um, but what is, so you have, you've studied implicit bias and you have found it has applicable, has application in the, uh, corporate investigation context. Unpack a little bit for, uh, of that for me. Sure. Um, I, uh, you know, conduct workplace investigations. I've conducted them. Um, I've conducted a lot of different kinds of investigations and, um, I, what I, I was sort of sitting around going, I don't know why this isn't, well, we aren't doing this better. I wonder what's going on. So I thought about it, and as part of my um, doctor work, um, I got a second doctorate in education in organizational change and leadership. And as part of my doctoral work, I had to write a dissertation. So I conducted a study on implicit bias in workplace investigations. And what I was interested in understanding was um, what a, a workplace investigator's knowledge was of implicit bias, um, what their motivation for doing the work was, and what organizational factors um, came into play to either enforce implicit bias or to help mitigate for it. Okay. Um, conducted a study um, from people from all over the world. Uh, total study was about 195. Um, I focused in, in this particular document about uh, on 117 internal investigators. And what I found was that they didn't have applied knowledge of implicit bias. Well, they may have understood the term, you know, that they could tell me what the definition was. They didn't understand where it showed up in the work that they did. 
So, okay. you know, um, as an example of that, I gave them a question, a series of questions. You know, it was a survey. It was a mixed method study. So there was a series of, um, you know, there was a survey and then there was a follow-up uh, interview. And in the survey, I asked a series of questions that included things like just a statement, you know, like number seven and a statement. And I gave them, you know, either strongly agree, agreed, you know, neither agree, disagree, disagree, strongly disagree. Okay. And as an example, I said, um, race and age um, uh, discrimination allegations are um, usually not proven by uh, evidence. Now, the only right answer to that question was neither agree or disagree if you were being neutral. And when people answered it, they would answer these, yes, yes, absolutely, right. or no. Now, evidence can take the form of many forms. It can be physical. It can be testimony. Right. And so, you know, you're telling me that, that, that it's usually not provable by, by, by evidence? That's not true. That isn't even logical. So um, uh, I hate those questions. <laughs> and Do you so, think it's more than just lawyers who hate those questions? When lawyers are screaming at the top of their head going, no, there's another answer. I don't like either one. Except that there was the right answer. The right answer was neither agree or disagree. Because at the top of the study, it said implicit bias in workplace investigations was the subject of the study. It wasn't a trick. And, True. And so the, the next thing that, that there was another question, and this is, this is sort of like they're, they're parallel is I gave them a series of emotions, okay? And, and there was always sort of a, a corresponding emotion. So if it was angry, it was happy. Um, and in there, I slipped in indifferent. And okay. I asked them to, based on their entire career of conducting investigations, to select all of the emotions that they had experienced during the course of their investigations. Do you know what the one word that they didn't pick most often was? What was? Indifferent. Really? which is just a synonym for neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, and, or impartial. And so right. um, it was, I think only, only 12 individuals out of 117 selected that. So it, it, it demonstrated to me that, that they really didn't understand, and, and there were another, other factors, but they, they didn't understand where it snuck in. It didn't, they didn't understand that it snuck in in the types of cases they preferred to do, which I asked about. Okay. They didn't understand it snuck in um, you know, when they were considering evidence, the types of questions they might ask, um, right. you know, who they might choose to interview. And all of that stuff it has an impact on the end result of the investigation. Um, right. And so the reason why people are getting shafted in workplace investigations is because the investigators have implicit bias that they're not aware of. Um, okay. I, and then, you know, organ they also told me 95% of the time their employer interferes in their investigation. So, okay. so let me back up a little bit. What would be a common context for this investigation? Um, it, it, well, there's many, um, but, uh, somebody walks into the human resources department and says, um, uh, you know, I am being, um, uh, discriminated against, uh, I, I, I'm being discriminated against because I'm being sexually harassed. Okay. That's an example of, of a type of investigation where this, this comes into play. As you're, you're saying when you deal with implicit bias, you're saying implicit bias more than just in the race context, but also in almost any kind of context, well, at least sex and race, where Everything. you have there's implicit bias in the way in which questions are asked 
kind of leading you just like to expose that well it's it's it it occurs into it, it starts whether to investigate do i investigate or do i not right or do i just say this isn't an issue and just shelve it um yeah, yeah. you know uh how thoroughly i investigate who i i choose to interview who I choose to, what questions I choose to ask them, what information I request, how I consider the information that I've collected, including the interviews and, and, and physical evidence, um, and then how I analyze all of that and come to my conclusion and how much I weigh that evidence. Right. And so it, it, it affects every single piece of an investigation, just like implicit bias figures into everything that we do. It's the unconscious, the, the, the real definition of implicit bias, as you know, is, is sort of the dictionary definition, is the unconscious beliefs that guide our actions. I right. added to that, and I said, it's not just that. What it is, is it's the unconscious beliefs that guide our actions, but it's due to a scientific reason. It's because your brain is doing two things simultaneously, and you have, you have old hardware, old software, no updates. And it's, it, your brain was, was created and designed to deal with tigers. And now, okay, it's dealing with an influx of information. And so what it's doing while you're processing information 24-7, even while you're sleeping, is that it is putting things into buckets. So it's, it's, it's categorizing, it's pattern detection, and then it's doing prob probability determination. And so, right. for example, I see somebody on the street, am I afraid of them? And do I move to the other side of the street? I identify and I do a probability determination on what my body should do. And it's unconscious. You're not aware of it. It's happening in split second. And right. so, and it's based on, on all the, the information that is stored in your brain. And so you, in order to resolve that, have to be aware that you could have implicit bias. You need to tell people to confront you when they think you are engaging in implicit bias. And be open to hearing that, because that's See, the only I way you're going to learn about it. I, I think there's almost this um, this wrong impression of what implicit bias is about. So implicit bias is another term that could be considered a political hot button issue. It's like, oh, you want to do implicit bias training? It's just hocus pocus, or or it's needed because you guys are all horrible people. Well, take the politics out of it, and implicit bias is not controversial. No. I mean, when I actually started studying it to teach a class, I go, this, who actually disagrees with it? And I think people disagree with some of the, the political ramifications of what you might say, but the idea of implicit bias is standard. That's just how we live life. You would be surprised. Um, I remember taking a class in diversity in, in my graduate program, and I remember my professor bringing in um, some folks who had previously graduated. Uh, there's a lot of military folks that were in my program, and bringing in a, uh, a member of the military to come in and that had taken, had completed the program to talk about this was the most important class that they ever took because she was getting pushback from people in the class who were saying, I'm not biased. Right. What are you talking about? I don't have implicit bias. I don't know what you're talking about. I am just making judgments that, that are fair. If your performance is bad, it's bad. And I'm telling you it's bad. And right. so, but they're not recognizing what might feed into that decision. And so that's where the implicit bias is. And so um, what I do by shift that definition is, is, and I do that based on a study that somebody else did. I shift that definition and ground it in science. Because if I tell you, it's because you, we used to have to run from tigers and it's not your fault. You're gonna be way more open to hearing what I have to say to try to understand how it affects you and how you need right. to fix it. 
I mean, because in, in some situations, implicit bias is good. I mean, we actually depend upon that. If I had 10 different encounters with a, a tiger and they all maul people to death, I'm not going to wait around for the 11th one to say, well, maybe this tiger is a friendly one and will let me pet. No, you're going to make decisions quickly, almost instantaneously based upon. But in some contexts, obviously implicit bias is horrible and it limits people's career opportunities, advancements, equal rights, things like that. But the idea of implicit bias in and of itself, to me, was just not controversial. And I actually struggled. And in my class, I struggled to, to, to communicate, look, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, I suggest that the call to understanding implicit bias is the call to lawyer at the highest level. It's like, hey, what are the actual facts here? Not our, not our preconceived notions, not our stereotypes. I want this situation, these people to be judged based upon the facts of this case. And that's really what the study of implicit bias is about. It is. It, it's about framing how things are framed, um, you know, and and so, you know, in the legal context, um, you know, what how how you spin those facts and, and how you see those facts and how you view those facts, because facts are, are debatable. I mean, they really are. There aren't alternative facts. What they are is what those facts mean, because, OK, so the sky is blue. So what? What does that mean? And it's the meaning of the fact that that becomes the issue. Right, right. Uh, all right, well, I could go on talking about implicit bias probably for another hour, but I know you've got to get going, and I actually have some things to do as well. Uh, but right before this interview, I had a situation where my son's car, his tire blew, and it's like one of these weird deals where you probably have never had a podcast delayed by a blown tire that the host had to change. But hey, this is the, the 21st century. You do everything, I guess. But thank you so much for joining us today. Your um, uh, your podcast, the, the, the links are there in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you so much. We'll be paying attention to these cases to see how they develop. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Please watch Law and Crime. Uh, I'm on usually Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 a.m. Eastern to 12 noon. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a complete and utter mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for our marketing efforts. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Tri. Plus City Marketing for our technical and computer support.